0: Now, I'd like to introduce tonight's speaker, Mr. James Fallows. James Fallows is a national correspondent for The Atlantic and has also contributed to Slate, the New York Review of Books, and The New Yorker. He is a frequent contributor to NPR and since 2009 has been a regular news analyst for Weekend All Things Considered. Please give a very warm welcome to James Fallows. Thank you. I'm going to do three main parts of discussion in the next few minutes before having questions. First I'm going to explain why I wrote this kind of book. It's a different book from the last couple I have done and I had a lot of fun doing it. As much fun as you can have while writing a book. And I will explain why I thought this was the way to tell some of the stories I wanted to tell about what was going on in China where my wife and I moved six years ago and have spent much of the time uh, since then. Second, I'm going to talk about some of the dramas going on in China now that are involved with the story of these oddball characters who I came across in some of the remote parts of China and why I thought the struggles they're involved in are emblematic of some of the larger struggles for China, the ones that are turning out well, the ones that are turning out not so well. And then um, finally, I will talk about uh, some of the big questions for China itself and for China and the United States. And I will even pause at one point for a brief uh, dramatic reading from the conclusion of, of the book. But most of, most of the actual contents of the book I'll leave for you either to ask about during question time or ideally to read about in your own personal <laughs> copies of this, this, uh, this, this excellent book. So that is, that's, that's the plan. The reason that I wrote this kind of book is to Right, so First, I should ask a question. I assume many people here have written books themselves, and many people here have considered writing books. And so you, you know if you've done it that it is a much more satisfying thing to have done than, than to do. Uh, and one of the, the markers for whether or not you want to undertake the next book or a first book is whether you feel compelled to do it because if you don't, you'll never finish. You know, even if you feel utterly compelled, you will consider many times just stopping. But so if you are not uh, determined in, in the beginning, uh, you will give up. The reason I felt compelled to do this book is to try to explain something I had just overwhelmed me and my wife on our immersion in China in these last few years, and I wanted to try to convey the feeling that we had had at, in, in China. Uh, we first had had our, our first exposure to China back in the mid-1980s when we were living in Japan and traveling with our then young kids, including uh, uh, Tad Fallows, now the father of, of Baby Jack, uh, to, around, around Asia, and we took them to China a couple of times. We got into China first in 1986 when we had to sort of cobble together a visa excuse to go there. My wife is a linguist. We became the American delegation to the World Esperanto League, having this convention in Beijing. Of all the times that our kids wanted to kill us, I think that was high on the list. Uh, but, But they felt a little bit better when they met the world's only native Esperanto speaker, which was this poor girl in New Zealand whose parents, emigre uh, Americans, had spoken only Esperanto at home, not English, not the English of their native language or the English of New Zealand. So our kids looked at us with a little less resentment after that. We saw China in those days, we'd gone back and forth, but because we hadn't really been of it uh, I- until we moved there in 2006, we wanted to be immersed and have some sense. And I remember as the months went on having a lot of different impressions that I tried to convey in Atlantic articles that I did. I did uh, 15 or 20 Atlantic articles and a book called Postcards from Tomorrow Square. And the point I was trying to get across was how simultaneously everything was true about China. It was wonderful and it was terrible. And it was modern and it was backward. And it was rich and it was poor. And it was progressing and it was regressing. And it was free and it was controlled. And the, the sense of of anything you might say finding validity someplace in this vast extent was something I could convey piece by piece through various, um, various articles, but it was hard to get it across as satisfyingly as I wanted to in any one, one uh, chunk. And as I thought about it, I realized there were two main approaches people took to trying to convey this wildness and, and breadth of China. And like consistent with what I was saying before, both of them are true, both of mm-hmm. them are valid, both of them are necessary. <laughs> One is the top-down overview, macro acro- uh, approach, the big book on whether where China is going, how its political system is evolving, is it friend or foe, et cetera. I've done some things like that myself. I've done pieces on how to understand the China-US trade imbalance and how to understand the manufacturing economy and things like that. And this is important and valid to have some, some book whose point is here's the main way to think about X, whether it's the environment or whatever. But also there's tremendous value to, especially in China, to the micro view of saying here is a person, a story, an industry, a development, a, a challenge that in its crystalline essence really tells you something about the rest of, of the society. Um, my own wife's excellent book, Dreaming in Chinese, is one illustration of this, what you learn about China by learning the Chinese language and how that shows things differently. Another excellent book called Foreign Babes in Beijing uh, by a woman named Rachel Dawaskin, is what she learned by becoming a soap opera star in China, kind of soap opera villainess was this young American woman, and she drew lessons from that. Uh, John Pomfret's great book, Chinese Lessons, is also very valuable this way. His classmates from Nanjing Yu back in the 1980s and what became of them. So both of these were, were valuable, and I thought that I had come across a micro picture that in its way was a, a lens on all the things that I thought were important and varied and worth trying to pay attention to in China. My mantra through everything I've tried to convey to people in the last uh, few years in my writing was to find a way to take China seriously without necessarily being afraid of it. And this is a hard thing for Americans to do. Usually our motivation for taking Japan or the Soviet Union or even China seriously is they're gonna take us over and therefore we have to learn about their way of industrialization or schooling or whatever. I am not in the China is going to take us over camp, as I can explain to you later on, but I am in the this really should be taken seriously camp because it's so interesting, because so much of what's happening in the world is driven there, because it will affect America, can affect it for good, might affect it for bad. And so I started seeing through my own personal uh, hobby and niche interest of aviation, a otherwise unpublicized development in China that I thought was a lens to tell a lot of the bigger story. And I'll give you just a couple illustrations of the kind of people I came across that made this story worth telling from my point of view. Uh, one was a man uh, whose family name is Xu X U. Uh, he was he uh, left Shanghai. Uh, And I tell this story early in the book. He left Shanghai in the early 1990s with no money at all, with some education behind him but no money, and he got to New York and he was in desperate panic when he found that the taxi fare from JFK Airport to his dormitory, I think at Hofstra or someplace like that, was about $2 less than his entire possession of money. So he had $2 for the rest of his American life as a student. He got a job that night uh, you know, he got two jobs the next day. Over the next 25 years, he became very rich, of course. And he eventually went back to China a couple of years ago to head what's called the Western Returned Scholars Organization. Returned scholars are people like him who had gone to a Western universities and, and, and come back. But the event that made most impression, the biggest impression on him when he was in the U.S. was he was fishing on Long Island Sound with some friends on a big fishing boat. One of the people had a big cast with the line and on the backswing, a big grapple hook went into somebody else's eye, and so there was panic, there was bedlam, there was bloodshed, there was a, you know terrible fear on the boat. The captain appeared to say, "Calm down, don't worry, I've called the coast guard. Their helicopter will be here in eight minutes or less." And Mister Chu was saying, "Oh, this will never happen," but. At 7 minutes, 45 seconds, the helicopter is descending, the man is picked up. He learns later on his eye is saved, his life is saved, everything is okay. And so Mr. Xu said, I know for sure that in my country this man will die. I, my dream for China is to bring helicopters so that if someone loses his eye on a fishing boat, you know, it will never be the same. He has lots of other things going on in his life, including hundreds of millions of tons of coal in Inner Mongolia, which are now his. But... As part of the deal for giving that coal to him, the Inner Mongolian government uh, made him agree to build a helicopter factory in Inner Mongolia. So, helicopters are being now pushed out by the uh, barrel load from Inner Mongolia for other Western return scholars. So that they can save, uh, they, they can rescue people, do business. I met in, in uh, Changsha, the capital of Hunan province, famous for a giant golden statue of Mao Zedong. I met a man named Mr. Zhang who runs his own air conditioning company. He also is distinctive for having his own air force and for having a replica of the palace of Versailles. He dreams of uh, making, making China a leader in green aviation. So he is now on the phone constantly with Al Gore and with people in Switzerland trying to find ways to have green aviation be, have its base in, uh, in Changsha in his own uh, kind of company airport that is there near, near his, his broad town. Uh, he had particular, uh, through him I met somebody else, which was uh, very early in my, my time in China. I met a man named Peter uh, Kleiss who is one of these linguistics whizzes you encounter in China who does business in French and Dutch and in German and in Chinese all interchangeably. And he was the dealer for a small kind of airplane being sold to businessmen in China, same kind of airplane I I have flown myself in the United States. And I turned out to be the most experienced pilot of this kind of airplane in the entirety of China, which was a horrifying thought. Uh, So I ended up being a ferry pilot for this plane from Changsha to the Zhuhai Air Show six years ago. And I describe in the book why among the many surprising things in China is that I am still alive after that flight. Uh, Just to give you an example, any of you involved in aviation, to get the plane going, we had to siphon gas out of an old Russian trainer that hadn't been flown in a long time, and kind of you know suck on the tubes and get it into the uh, the wing tanks. But it all it, it all wor- worked out. I met a man in Xi'an who is the the head of the so-called Xi'an uh, aviation industrial base, where two hundred and fifty thousand aviation workers work. They're making parts for Airbus, parts for Boeing, parts for Embraer, and trying to have their own enterprises. This man has in his office two statues, not of the Wright brothers. Uh, Mr. Zhang has a statue of the Wright brothers. Instead, one is a statue of Deng Xiaoping, because this man says, if it weren't for Deng Xiaoping, uh, I would still be working in a rice paddy, and you know, life would be different for me. The other is a statue of George Washington, saying George Washington could have been king, and he decided not to. Let this be an example to our people, etc. I, I have I, two truncate a list that could go on for quite a while, I started meeting more and more wild characters. Chinese, American, European, Asian—these uh, poor, deluded people, uh, p- people who've been laid off by by airlines in the United States and had become freight dogs in in uh, remote areas of China, and were uh, hauling these, these freight planes. They are so desperate for freight pilots in China that I got an offer to to be one of them. And any of you with a pilot's license, this is uh, can be the the land for you. I met a man uh, who went to to China as a representative of Boeing, stayed and essentially became Chinese because he believed that he could make the aviation system there there safer. And finally, uh, when I was in China about a year ago, I went to the Hong Kong air show and I saw a Hawker business jet for about $23 million bought with a giant suitcase full of cash from a guy who was a businessman in, in southern China. There's no place he can fly the plane right now, but it is a nice thing to have. He had the money, and so, so, so point one is I ended up thinking there was a lot of drama to tell in this world and in almost any area where you take the lid off today's China you see tremendous activity, idealists and hucksters and real uh, people who, who are trying for the best. I'll mention one other. A wonderful man named Mr. Gao. He, grew in, he was a Beijing guy. He went to Beijing Aviation University as a sort of airport designer. He, the government sent him to the Haas School of Business in Berkeley for two years which was great and he was so touched by that but in exchange he had to do 10 years wherever they sent him, which ended up to be the equivalent of Scottsbluff, Nebraska within China where his dream is to set up an Aerotropolis. And they've built something sort of like uh, DFW Airport in the middle of nowhere. And they have these great charts bigger than this of all the uh, high tech parks that are going to be there and all of the uh, spas that will be there and have a little rival, Las Vegas and Miami. These kinds of people get your attention. The cover of my book is, has an illustration from propaganda posters of the olden days, and so these aren't the people in China anymore, but this kind of look of people just looking up and saying, yeah, we can do this, why not, of both realistic and unrealistic ambition is what I wanted to convey. So that was why I wrote this book because the characters were so compelling. Let me tell you now briefly some of the ways in which the bigger themes of China today come into conjunction with uh, the, the drive to aerospace. When I say drive to aerospace, one of the first points is just the scale of the ambition. I mentioned earlier that everything about China is true at the same time, good and bad, that also is true in economic ways. If you look at the transportation grid, more seaports are being built than any place else, more highways and more subways and more low-speed rail and more high-speed rail and more airports. You know, all of them are going the same, same uh, direction. Um, Part of this is, in my view, the result of the main explanation for whatever happens in China, which is real estate. You know, people have ways to, if you can use your farm for an airport, if you can use it for a train line, you and the provincial government are likely to be be better off. But it means there's all this push and everything, which means in aviation, um, who, who can guess how many airports are under construction in the U.S. right now? I think the answer is, Zero or one, it's some number in that scale. In Europe, it's about the same. I think Berlin's building a new airport. There are a hundred airports, you know, entire airports being built in China now, not counting the ones that are being refurbished. They start from a low base, but still, it's a tremendous uh, momentum. Uh, Most of the planes that will be purchased in the world over the next 20 years, according to Boeing and Airbus, you know, disproportionate numbers will be there. Uh, The pilots, that's where the pilot training is. So just the scale is is one thing here. It also relates to the model of the development, which is simultaneously high-low on the Chinese scale. The high-end is the central government, we care about aviation and aerospace according to our current 12th five-year plan, which is taken very seriously of course, but also it has, it's at the bottom end. Every mayor, every provincial governor, every guy with a, a guy or woman with a dream. I say, with a, with a, the woman, one of the most, one of the people who most made me regret I couldn't talk the publisher into pictures. But I will do this on our website. Is a woman in southern in named uh, her family name is Chun. She is the Amelia Earhart, although still alive, of China. And she's made this into kind of a, uh, a Kardashian family career where she has, you know, there's pictures of her and all these glamour shots. She is probably in her uh, early forties. Her son is in a teen, her teens and she always travels with her son so she can say, do you think I am his mother? Most people think I am his sister. <laughs> and so the poor son is being admitted to Deerfield or someplace, so he 's waiting to get, to, to get out of, out of there. So you have the local boosting going on a, a, every place um, you have You have of course, the export stakes stakes that are involved here. Boeing is usually america 's leading exporter. Aerospace is usually our largest net export uh, segment. Aerospace is an area of traditional domination. Most of the Chinese planners do not think this is a short-term area of really being able to overtake Boeing or Airbus, but certainly they say this is one of the commanding heights industries they would like to be involved in. Uh, The role of the military is involved in a crucial and fascinating way in in this this Chinese project. Um, How many people here actually are pilots in the US? Some, so a significant number. You know that charts of airspace in the US most of it you can go in. You know There are areas, there are military zones, there are big city zones, there are restricted zones, but most of it you can go. In the Chinese charts, you're not allowed to see them as a foreigner to begin with, because that's a, a state secret. But if you could see them, as I have by paying a PLA guy, what you would see is that most of it is military and there are little tiny um, snaking paths. That's why flights in China are so often delayed why their scheduled time is so slow? Because the military controls almost everything and the air civilian authorities do not. And so one of the fascinating uh, prisms of the main battle in China now between um, liberalizing economic forces and control forces is over airspace. The military wants to keep it. The business people want to have more of it for themselves so they can have their jets, so they can have uh, more routes so that the things can go uh, more quickly. And that front changes every day. And if you want to see how the security forces are doing, the battle over airspace is one of the main arenas. There was a recent um, skirmish that led to a a somewhat significant resolution where about a year ago the military agreed that airspace up to 1,000 meters in China would be uncontrolled and people could use it. So about 3,000 feet. The problem is 1,000 meters above sea level, not above the ground. So, so for, the, for the coast of China, that's pretty good. As soon as you get inland, it, it, it becomes more, more troubling. Uh, the, the role of the environment is, is at the center of this. As I'm sure all of you know, the, the environmental situation in China is dire, and in my view, the main national crisis the country faces. At the same time, there are tremendous efforts in China to do something about it. So it's a race between how bad it is and how hard, hard they're, they're trying. This involves aviation, of course, because with China doing more and more climate efforts and aviation having disproportionate effect on emissions, China has decided that this will they will make themselves as much of a clean energy center for aerospace as they can. So I talked to the people who are uh, midwifing the deal between Boeing and the Qingdao Provincial University to grow enough algae in China to make jet fuel, and they have actual plans to run Chinese jets on uh, on jet fuel at a certain time. There are all sorts of illustrations of the surprising interpenetration of US and Chinese ambitions and people and institutions that come in this this world i'll give this one illustration about 15 years ago a china southern the china southern airlines got its first permission to land in LAX so they had with great pride their flight from guangzhou to LAX a very long distance flight as soon as the plane got here, it was just covered with a million safety violations by the FAA. And they said, you know, you're not coming anymore until this is, is fixed up. And the people from China Southern were very troubled by this. They called their, con- their counterparts at Boeing and said, we can't buy more airplanes if we can't go to the United States. And so Boeing became the interloper for trying to have Western, mainly American standards applied to Chinese aviation and take What were then very low safety standards, very bad accident records, and bring them up to international level with amazing success. And there are lots of people from the you know this. There's been never any press about this, but half of the Chinese aviation bureaucracy keeps coming back and forth to the United States, seeing how it's done here, trying to apply it there, and that is is uh, is significant. There are ways in which the the openness and closeness of China uh, is is uh, brought to bear here. Also what I think of as the most important part about China, which is the unknowability of what's ahead, I think is very much involved in the prospects with, with aviation. I have a little part right from the end of this book which I think I'll actually read after I do the, the next point, next and final point I have to make. But to, to summarize this point, almost every, just as Rachel Dewaskin could say, you can see the story of China in its soap opera industry. And Deborah Fallows can say you can see the story of China in its language. I say you can see the story in China and how hard hard it's trying and how many problems it's had in trying to be dominant in this industry. So now my third point of the biggest scale questions about China and China and the U.S. that we draw from this kind kind of examination. It's been interesting to see the shift in news coverage of China over the last uh, four or five years in the United States. Five years ago, before the Olympics, the coverage was all sort of wide-eyed, and the Chinese can do anything. In the last year or so, it's been much more, I think, uh, sort of troubling about uh, about political problems there, about turmoil, about some of the economic uh, setbacks. Um, I think that both. I think the good news was too good. And the bad news in a way has been imprecisely bad. Because I think that actually the question for China when it gets over some of the current political transition ones is whether China will succeed in becoming something more than what it is now. Here's what I mean. I think the last 30 years in China have been a historical miracle in one kind of economic transformation. Hundreds of millions of people have been brought from the farm to the urban working class condition. Uh, Poverty has been alleviated. A few people have gotten very rich. China as a nation has uh, regained its pride. Uh, And this has been done mainly through low wage manufacturing, as you know, and infrastructure, all these railroads and airports, and construction, all these new cities. But many people in China are wondering have they entered what they call a low-wage trap? Where they've gotten to the low-wage uh, factory uh, level, but will they ever go higher up above that to make higher-wage things? Not to assemble the apples, but to have their own apple and things like that. My only visual aid for the moment, this is an iPad. Some of you may have one at home. Let's say this costs $500. I've seen where these are made in China. About $50 stays in China. The rest goes to Apple, it goes to chip makers in Germany and Japan or in South Korea. It goes to rich countries, not to a poor country. And so more of the share is what China w- wants to, to, to get. The way to have a proxy, I think there are two proxies for whether China is able to make this transformation. One is how many corporations you've ever heard from that are Chinese. Because the profits from something like this are going to corporations. They're going to Apple, they're going to FedEx, they're going to Samsung, they're going to Siemens and others. Not to these little Chinese uh, companies you haven't heard from. So far I can think of more famous corporations from South Korea which has fewer people than a normal Chinese province or even maybe Holland which has fewer than than Beijing than in China where they're big state-owned enterprises. That's one proxy. proxy. those of you in China have rec- been in China will recognize is how slow the Internet is. There's no technical reason the Internet in China should be slow. The Internet is slow in America for technical reasons. Our, broad, our stru- uh, infrastructure is worse than Korea's or Japan's. It's slow in China for censorship reasons. You know, the burden of the Great Firewall is so enormous. And because of a slow internet you can't have really good universities, you can't have really good research centers if everything is gummed down. That, that, that's the other proxy. But also we can look at industries like aerospace, like pharmaceuticals, like some infotech ones where success indicates a whole transformation from simply a factory mentality to something else. Uh, there's more I have to say on this. Actually am actually going to have an article in the Week in Review section the New York Times this coming week making, making this case that to tell which direction China is going and whether it's going to become actually a rich country as opposed to just a bigger version of its current factory success you can look at some of these corporate and high wage um, successes. I won't tell you anything more about that. I'll just end by by uh, reading just a paragraph or two from the end of this book and then I'll have some questions which gets across my main point. I'm talking here about whether China is going to emerge as a model for the rest of the world which many people say. Saying China is steadily gaining, gaining the hard power that comes from factories and finance. Its military hard power is increasing though from an extremely low base. But lasting influence in the world has come more from soft than hard power. Ideas for living Models of individual, commercial, and social life that people emulate because they are attracted rather than because, than because they are compelled. Soft power becomes powerful when people imagine themselves transformed, improved by adopting a new style. Koreans and Armenians imagine they will be freer or more successful if they become Americans or Australians or Canadians. Young men and women from the provinces imagine they will be more glamorous if they look and act like people in Paris, London, or New York. If a society thinks it is unique because of its system or its style or its standards, it can easily exert soft power because outsiders can imagine themselves taking part in that same system and adopting those same styles. But if it thinks it is unique because of its identity, China is successful because it is Chinese, the appeal to anyone else is self-limiting. I talk about ways in which China is having troubles with this and I end this way. I'm sitting in Washington DC as I write these words two months ago. And I realize how different the world feels to me than when I was sitting in Beijing or Yinchuan or Chengdu or Lin Yi with the ca- chaos and achievement of Chinese efforts just outside my window. From a distance it can seem strange to think there are, lim- that there are any limits or challenges to China's uh, progress. The action, the sense of can do, is so different from the political and economic paralysis of America's age of constraint. But I know how much is in flux and how much is at stake. It is not an evasion of analysis, but a recognition of China's complexity and the world's to say that a wide range of outcomes is possible, and that it's worth watching very carefully, signals like those I've mentioned to recalibrate our estimates. Nearly every day of these past six years, when watching the earth being scraped away for airports or highways, when seeing apartments put up within a week, and the families who used to live in the knockdown tenements sent scrambling to other parts of town, When seeing the beggars next to the Bentleys and the security agents watching students in the internet cafes, I thought to myself, how long can this go on? And nearly every day when seeing these same sites, I've asked myself, what is this system not capable of? Anyone who says China is destined to succeed or to fail, to open up or to close down, either knows much much more than I do or much less. Anyone so sure is not willing to acknowledge the great unknowability of life in general and life for this quarter of mankind. That is my pitch. It's exciting there. I've tried to convey some of the excitement and why it's worth seeing where this unpredictable ride leads and ends. With that, I'll be happy to answer any questions. Thank you all for coming, and I really am grateful. My question to you is, in the beginning you said, made a comment that you didn't think China was going to... Um... Um, I'm not sure the words you use, eat our lunch here in the United States, and I, I tend to agree with you, but I am curious to know what you think China's um, uh, position will be in relation to the United States in the coming generation or two. First, about the Chinese-U.S. competitive dynamic, and then about the relationship a generation from now. Um, I bow to no one in my concern about American political problems and, and fears of decline and things like that but I, I think I, I, would, I would make two points about them. One is almost everything that's wrong with America would be just as wrong if China didn't exist. In my view, China is in no significant degree uh, responsible for anything that, that's either good or particularly bad about the United States. Um, second, what struck me after living in China, and I've spent a fair amount of my time outside the U.S. now, is that the United States is probably in economically better shape than it thinks and politically worse shape than it thinks. Uh, Economically better in that, while polarization is our great problem, the raw power of the US economy is still quite impressive. And and I think I would use California as an example for this. Northern California has all of its tech strength. Southern California has all of its soft power and other strengths too. The government in California is in terrible shape, but the economy still is able to attract talented people from around the world. I think something similar is true for the U.S. economy. So I think the pro- but and politically, I think the U.S. is in worse shape than it thinks. In this way, we like to complain about our political system and yet still think it's the best. I'm not sure it's the best. I, I think that the U.S. Senate has become an objective harm to the national well-being. It would never be designed this way if people were starting with current situations. And so, just as California has shown that a government can really become uh, dangerously dysfunctional, so too in the US. On the relationship between China and the, and the US, it has been, number one, striking that the most constant part of US policy, foreign policy in the last 30 plus years has been towards China, where it's been simultaneously Number one, we'd rather work with them than against them in a new Cold War. Number two, we think their rise is on balance good rather than bad. But number three, we really disagree with them on a lot of things and we'll disagree in the long run. Uh, So I think that it's to the credit of politicians on both sides that what could have been a very dangerous relationship has been more or less kept stable. I think it is plausible that we'll have between the two countries sort of a continued relationship. The other part of that is that China, both Chinese people and Chinese leaders are much more concerned about their own problems than any of ours. I don't think there are many Chinese officials who spend one minute a day thinking how can we overtake the United States. It's more how can we deal with this protest in and how can we get rid of the water table damage and, and things like that? What can I do with real estate? So I think that there is not the head-to-head relationship that many people would fear, and I think it's conceivable uh, that this could go on and it's a forum for for a while. I wonder if you could comment, um, if you're if, in your estimation and your judgment, is there a ticking clock on China's development? Um, you mentioned that China is very concerned about their own problems, and one of them uh, seems to be this large demographic shift going to happen in a very rel- relatively short period of time in which a large number of people will move into retirement and their socialist system can't support it. And that's what this Russian industrialization is all about. The fruit of the one-child policy is often discussed in China, but in a different way in my experience from the U.S., where there we found a minority of people in China who were bitterly unhappy with what the one child policy had meant for them directly, and certainly the forced abortions that uh, Mr. Chun has been protesting over the years and has gotten in, in, in trouble for but in general, most people in China in my view, in my experience said the forced child policy uh, the one child policy was tough medicine, but it was worth worse it was the disease that cured was worse. You know, the cure was in fact better than the disease because the disease of overpopulation was something that most people recognize as a genuine burden for the, the country. And so, if you assume that there are many ripple effects of, of having such a smaller. Uh, young cohort, which include personality changes, different male-female dynamics, but mainly this retirement one. I think people recognize it as a problem, but a problem that's better than the other problem of having just a steadily growing population. The reason it's not as bad for China to have this distortion compared with the US is that even in the last 30 years, when living standards have gone up so, so fast, the Chinese public in all forms consumes only about one half of the Chinese GDP. The rest, in a historically unprecedented form, is invested either in Chinese infrastructure or, or overseas in the form of T notes and the rest. So they have reserves to draw on. But, but there, I think the, I would think of the ticking clock as the demographic one is, as being one of about 16 different clocks that are ticking. And so, you know, they just have to keep things going because. So many things are threatening to fly apart. And the whack-a-mole image you can have, the bicycle image you can have, the whitewater rafting image you can have, where there's one boulder after another. Uh, th- their government has to be very it's both very stolid and very agile in certain ways. But this is one of their problems. I wonder where you see the technology side of it going, the higher tech uh, uh, for example, the space side of aerospace and semiconductors, uh, Clearly, they've got the ability to produce semiconductors. They do it for a lot of the world. But the higher-scale integrated circus creating and then being able to invent and create uh, right. more sophisticated products, the invention side. I imagine right. on one side, the military is, is a, a major driving force. Is their controlled economy an advantage in that area? We recognize the huge capacity of the Chinese system with the right integration for the outside world for even very precise manufacturing. Again, if you have an iPad, it was made in China. And, that's, uh, and most, most of the world electronics are now. So production can be done in various very precise ways. Um, Large-scale national projects can also be carried out. Um, I describe, I talk in this book about why it'll be easier for China to have a moonshot than perhaps a Boeing or Airbus type industry because a moonshot is like the Three Gorges Dam. You throw everything at it, it's a huge net, you know, you just make it a a, a giant uh, force of will and force of of, of people to to do it. The question is the higher level, both sheer scientific leadership and high value industries and there's tremendous concern among Chinese leaders on both those, those fronts. Here would be the if you take universities as a proxy for success in both these fields, China has built universities faster than anybody else. When I was a kid at Redlands High School, there was one year when I think both UC Irvine and UC Santa Cruz opened. or so There were two branches, two entire branches that opened in the same year. That kind of scale of construction is is going on there. But it's still the case that the research output of Chinese universities is heavily sort of Plagiarized or not cited, and other other or, or or suspect. It's still the case that Chinese ethnic Chinese people and Chinese citizens have won all the leading scientific prizes, but only after they've left. And and it's uh, there is a sense that to make univers the question of whether you could have universities that people will be attracted to with controlled press, slow internet, bad pollution, all the rest that you know, people like to come to California, even Cambridge Mass, but they're, it, they're, it's more of a sort of challenge to go to Tianjin or, or Beijing. So I think that, that the question you ask is one they're trying to answer. And for the, the moment, there are more disappointments than successes on that front. And the real question is, can they succeed there with anything like the China of today? Uh, the uh, final line here, 30 years ago, many people naively said, if China prospers, it will democratize. That clearly is not so. It's much more prosperous and it's not more democratic. The question is, can it take the next step of prosperity without liberalizing, you know, without having freer speech, freer Internet? And, and that is an open question and one to watch. Some future time, a political or economic crisis in China and one faction decides they're gonna wag the dog and attack Taiwan. What does the United States do in response to this crisis which probably will eventually happen? What do we do? I will stipulate your assumption that it might happen. I, I mean, that there might somebody might do that in Chinese uh, uncertainty. Um, let's talk about if it did happen, what next? I think this is the most genuinely dangerous part of US-China relations because the understanding is so different on the Chinese side from the U.S. side you know, that Americans may differ in their exact views of China of Taiwan. And certainly, it's more varied than it was in the era of Chiang Kai-shek and the, and the, the China lobby and all of that. But still, there's an assumption in the U.S. and outside China that China ha- that Taiwan has sort of legitimate, independent interests. And part of the normalization deal by Jimmy Carter was to protect those interests, even while saying it's one big China. Almost nobody in China agrees with that. You know, almost everybody in China I've ever met feels about Taiwan as they do about Tibet. That this is as intrinsic to China's motherland as either the southwest of the United States or Pearl Harbor in, their, in the analogy that they normally use to United, to, is to the United States and uh, so there is the potential for real misunderstanding. That this is, uh, similarly, as as you know, a government in Beijing could not really tolerate letting Taiwan become independent, uh, as as the U.S. could not tolerate letting Arizona or something uh, go go off. So I think that the interest, it's in the interest of all parties to have the kind of ambiguous status quo of the last thirty years. That in theory. Everybody disagrees, but in practice, they get along more and more closely. If it's forced to a disagreement of principle, then you have real problems. I think the U.S. would do everything it could to damp things down. Uh, because the U.S. doesn't want to go to war over Taiwan, but it knows that China would. And that that's the main thing the PLA is arming for. And so, but the U.S. can't also abandon Taiwan. So t- finding some way to damp it down in your scenario is what I think the U.S. government would try to do find some ways to make itself not in the center of this and uh, calm it down. The, the private airplane market in China, yes. what does that look like? And also, what are the regulations governing private uh, aircraft ownership? Because I thought they weren't allowed. Yeah. Um, I could be incorrect. But Chinese government efforts to move up the value chain, as you've uh, already commented on. How do, you, how do you view efforts of the Chinese government, including the use of companies like uh, AVIC to develop regional and jumbo jets, and do you see that as a viable strategy? So on the private airplane market, this is something I paid a lot of attention to while I was there, because I'm an avid small plane pilot, and the kind of plane that I fly, the the Cirrus, originally a Cirrus SR-20 and Cirrus SR-22, is now the most popular small plane in the world. It kind of has a parachute for the entire plane. You know, if trouble emerges, you pull a red handle and it comes on down. And as token of, as a token of the Chinese government's interest in this field, the Cirrus company was founded by two sort of modern-day Wright brothers, Allen and Dale Clapmeyer in uh, Duluth, Minnesota. Uh, they, you know, they've been tremendous successes, and the company is now owned by the Chinese government. You know, about a year and a half ago, it was having financing problems, and the Chinese uh, branch of Avic, the uh, Chinese aviation uh, company, uh, bought it. So it now owns uh, Cirrus, and it's b- been looking for shares in other small plane uh, markets too. So the reason there is a push for this in China is the boom of, of business uh, people who would like to use these planes for prestige like their Lamborghinis. They'd like to use them to go to their factories. In southern China, helicopters will become very popular. So there, is, there are structural reasons why, why business aviation would take off, so to speak, well in, in China. The main problem is the regulatory one. And so the, uh, I mentioned the thousand meter allowance that, that's been, been provided. There are other sorts of liberalizations. It used to be to fly a business jet trip you need to apply for permission two weeks in advance which sort of reduced the spontaneity value of, of, of business travel. That's been ratcheted now. Now it's a couple of hours in advance and foreigners can do more of it but there is every single day there's tension between the security interests and the business interests on this front and the foreign Manufacturers have uh, have been throwing all their weight behind these reformers in the U.S. and uh, in China, and it really is interesting. I describe some of the ways in, in, this, in which this plays out. Moving up the value chain, that is what they're trying to do. So far, the big aviation projects for China, their their nine one nine plane and the uh, regional jet, have so far they've been mainly stealth export vehicles for. GE with its engines and Honeywell with its avionics and, and everybody else with, with, with brake systems. The, I think the Chinese authorities know that. And the question is, uh, can they find a way to learn quickly enough from these, uh, these foreign products? And, and that is, that's the battle that, that is, is going on and, and we, don't, we don't know. One other point about this. If you went to the Shanghai, did anybody go to the Shanghai Expo? or any of the, uh, any of the, the uh, air shows that happen in, uh, in and around China. The enthusiasm for these new Chinese planes reminds me of sort of 1950s or 1960s Tomorrowland type displays in the US. They have these movies of a Chinese made plane girdling the earth and, and Chinese passengers you know, b- being able to fly in their own product. And that is kind of touching I mean, and, and, and realizes things we have lost. But uh, whether they'll do it is to be seen. They're trying hard, and I'll give you more specifics later on. My question has to do with what I think of when I think of Boeing, which is engineering capability and culture, Yes, and uh, just thinking of the Chinese aviation industry, uh, thinking of things like safety, quality control, uh, producing to a contract specification. Where is the indigenous capability in China uh, along those lines? And uh, should we be worried about flying in a Chinese airplane? So let's talk about Chinese airlines for a moment, then Chinese airplane. Chinese airlines are very safe now. And they're statistically, through most of the, the last decade, they've been statistically safer than American airlines because there've been, there's been only one significant crash in the last decade. There have been more than that in, in the United States. And that's partly because the planes are all new, and they're all Boeings or Airbuses, and they are there is this integration of Western standards in uh in inspections and all that. So that, that that has really been incorporated. For Chinese airplanes, I think the example of Russia and the former Soviet Union is on their mind in many, many ways. You know, politically, the Chinese leaders don't want to break up as the Soviet Union did, but also in terms of engineering. They recognize the Soviet military-led uh Aerospace establishment is not a successful model for them. Of course, there was a terrible crash a couple of days ago, and that I think the Chinese authorities recognize they have to they have to err on the side of super safety, super caution, super slow learning of this this culture. I, I quote a an incredible book by a man named E. E. Bauer, who was a Boeing engineer, who was the first Boeing representative in China in the uh, late in, in the mid 1970s. He talked about, for example. The Chinese engineers on the, the airports then, there were, were f- fuel filters, for example, that had to be replaced every 100 hours because they became crammed with microparticles. And instead, or these were oil filters, instead the Chinese workers would say they look clean, they'd wash them out with a hose and slap them back in there. And of course the engine would be destroyed you know, the, the next time it, it flew. There is clear awareness that this is the cultural change to, to be, be made. I think the integration... That is Boeing's actual core competency is going to be the hardest one for the Chinese aerospace establishment to rise to to imitate. It will take them a long time anyway to have a track record of safe airplanes, so people can say, "Well, they've been flying for 20 years; we know they're safe." So before that, they're going to be selling it to regional Chinese airlines and to Air Laos, you know, Air Burma. Air, Sudan, you know, th- those sorts of, of customers. But they, they recognize that this is a, an all or nothing proposition if it's, if it's ever unsafe. But similarly, you know, making iPads is unsafe for the workers, but the iPads themselves are of high quality. And, and so I think that they, they recognize that the, the, there has to be the same quality standard for airplanes that there is of iPads. I'm reluctant to bring up uh, the uh, possibility of uh, discussing India, another parallel uh, universe, uh, but they have uh, similar um, potential, similar, uh, well, not politics, but similar um, uh, science and and technology. How how would you see India uh, in a clash or at least um, um, uh, being in competition with them? So I know much less about India than I do about China. I've been there a couple of times, but I don't, I don't, what I'm saying is the impression of a guy who's been there a couple of times and has read about it as opposed to more than that. The First, the weakness of China, uh, of India compared with China, is the effect of its modernization. We recognize in the U.S. that globalization has unfortunately skewed the income distribution in the U.S. We're trying to cope with that. In China, globalization has been the great engine of equality in China. I mean, it is creating these, these billionaires, and China is becoming a very genie coefficient unequal place. But before that... You have several hundred million people who were peasants and now are urban factory workers. And that is something, and that didn't work for India because the globalized part of China's economy is what non school graduates, factory workers, can take part in. The globalized part of India's economy is the software outsourcing houses. So you have a couple of million Indians who have prospered a lot from that integration, a couple hundred million Chinese who have prospered from it. On the other, the strength of India, apart from whatever greater resiliency democracy has, is in the same, India is more likely to have leading-edge research uh, breakthroughs, high-value corporations and the rest, because it's, its universities are better. The chaos of its press and its, and its uh, expressions, like the chaos here, which is part of a, a freer society. So I think. So far, the Chinese model has been more effective. The greater effect of the Indian model may become more evident now, but it, but it, doesn't, it doesn't enrich hundreds of millions in the same way. And that's all I got on India. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my question is, um, is China uniquely unknowable? If so, why? And as compared to what? For instance, yeah. do we know the future of the EU, the US? If so, why? And also, what do you mean by uh, the unpredictability of China? Do you apply, do you imply um, the instability of China? Of course, things are unknown. Of course, everything in life is is unknowable. I mean, to be serious for a moment, on Monday night, uh, a week ago tonight, I was having dinner with a man named Peter David of The Economist magazine. Two days later, he was killed in a car crash. You know, just, uh, we don't know what's gonna happen to us tomorrow. Uh, and its um, life is unknowable for societies or for individuals. Second, about China, you can argue that given that the last thirty years have been more dynamic for it than for Europe, Western Europe, or for the United States, it is reasonable to say there's possible possibly greater dynamism and unknowability in, in the future. And I, I would argue that the the effects of the very rapid uh, prosperity and industrialization of China are not fully absorbed or felt yet. The environmental effects, the social effects, the political effects, the international effects. So it is reasonable to say that there are rational reasons to think that there's a greater band of possibilities for China in the next while. Also, I think the nature of the political system also means there's possibly greater unknowability about China, which is we know the US political system, we know the ways in which it is bad. And we, we are sort of resigned to its inability to match our resources to our problems. Our problems aren't that great. Our resources would easily address them. Query can we match the one to the other? China's political system is harder to know from outside, as the two, as, as the Bolshevik case certainly knew, certainly demonstrated. So the fact that a political system is not as transparent as some others, I think, as to the instability. So I'm not talking about upheaval, tumult. I think there is a strong desire by both most Chinese people and by the Chinese leaders to not have a time of real upheaval, since in recent Chinese memory that's been so painful for the country. But I think the objective forces on it are greater and perhaps less, less predictably balanced than on some other countries, and that's why why I think it is worth, why I keep a more open mind about what it might look like in 30 years than what the U.S. might look like. Uh, Maybe I lack imagination, but it's somehow easier for me to imagine the U.S. of 30 years from now than to be confident in imagining the China. On the other hand, I'm, I'm American, so I know more about America. So that's... That's the best I can do on that front, too. i also would like to thank Rand, thank Zocalo, and thank all of you. It's a real honor to be here on the first appearance of my uh, gala book tour, so thanks for getting me off to the start.